You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com All right, friends, welcome to the broadcast. Welcome to Corbett Report Radio for this August 20th, 2012 edition. And once again, for those of you keeping track at home, this is the 200th original broadcast of Corbett Report Radio. So thank you to all of you out there for helping to make this all possible and supporting me and my work for the past 200 episodes of this radio broadcast. And of course, my podcast and videos and interviews and all of that, of course, possible only because of the kindness of the subscribers to the Corbett Report at CorbettReport.com. And uh, episode 200 of this broadcast was due to be aired last Friday night, but uh, here in my palatial home recording studio in Western Japan, unfortunately, I've been having some uh, some construction going on at my apartment for the last uh, few days, and it's scheduled to go on for another couple of weeks. So last Friday, with the hammering and clattering of them erecting the scaffolding was particularly egregious. And in fact, for the video viewers outside uh, out there, I will uh, show you just a little bit of the scaffolding they've erected around my apartment building. So if you happen to see and or hear any Japanese construction workers walking around in the background hammering and clattering, please forgive me, but uh, there's not much that can be done about it. But on that note, we are going to uh, we're going to have another very interesting week of, on the broadcast this week. We have Pepe Escobar, our old friend from the Asia Times at atimes.com and many other online sites besides talking about Syria and the latest moves in geopolitics in the Middle East and in Asia. Uh, on the broadcast on Wednesday night, we're scheduled to have uh, Brock West of the brand new Asia Pacific Perspective blog at apperspective.blog spot.com. I hope people are checking that out. A lot of very interesting information about the Asia Pacific region, which I'm going to be concentrating more and more on in the coming weeks and months here on the broadcast and in my other work besides. But tonight we have a very interesting conversation lined up for you on the note of, well, Japan and tea. And when people put those words together, they probably think of the tea ceremony, that rarefied part of uh, Japanese culture that is uh, an inscrutable art to most foreigners, in which every single gesture has meaning. But tonight we're not talking about the tea ceremony, we're talking about the tea party. And it's uh, spread around the world, including here to Japan. So tonight I'm joined on the line from Tokyo by our guest Mark Abella, who is... uh, a member of the Tokyo Tea Party at tokyo-teaparty.jp. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you here to talk about this and to talk about what's happening in Japan. Some very interesting political uh, sentiments are swelling here as things really do start to uh, change in a fundamental way in what used to be the second biggest economy in the world, now the third, and slipping rapidly, unfortunately. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about yourself. I understand you're a fellow Canadian who has also transplanted to Japan. Uh, What brought you out here and when did that happen? Um, I was born in Montreal, Canada, so it's um, a very, first I, I need to say it's a very social socialist mindset, um, and, and most of what's to be managed in, in Quebec um, as a province or the, the city in Montreal is managed by the state, so it, it does provide an interesting uh, um, feel of comfort for a lot of people, and, and I think I may have abused this feeling of, of comfort, and I decided to travel, I, I thought... I've got plenty of time, my pension, my everything is, is, is fixed, is booked. And so I just allowed myself um, extra traveling. And I've been traveling, I, would, I think I just counted recently, I'm talking about 50, 60 countries around the world. And I just land, I, I managed to find a scholarship in Japan uh, some 20 years ago, 15 years ago, at what is known as the Tokyo 
University, which was built by uh, by Itoi Hirobumi when he launched his Japan Empire. Uh, um, so it used to be the Tokyo uh, Empire University, um, and so I, I launched. A, I got a scholarship there, so I came to Japan 18 months and learned the language, enjoyed the place, the food. I think back in '95, early '90s, Japan was still a completely different country. So that's that's. I've been here since then. Absolutely, it, it certainly has changed. Even in the eight years I've been here, let alone the uh, I guess fifteen or so that uh, that you have been here, and a very interesting country for a lot of different reasons. So let's start talking about that and some of the specifics. But first, let's take our first break of the evening. Once again, talking to Marco Bella of the Tokyo Tea Party. We'll be back with more right after these messages. Okay, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett here from Corbett Report Radio here in the sunny climes of Western Japan, and we're talking to someone in the sunny climes of Eastern Japan today. We're talking to Mark Abella of the Tokyo Tea Party at Tokyo-TeaParty.jp. And just before the break, we we're talking a little bit about Mark's own history and how he、uh, transplanted from Canada to Japan. And、uh, he was mentioning he's been around the world and traveled many, many different countries, but、uh, but ended up in Japan about 1995. Did you say? That's correct. I first came in 1989, 1990, and then、uh, came again.、Uh, and I've been in Japan for 15 years, 16 years in a row since 1995. So I've been really looking at the presidents, the prime, the prime ministers, the way they've been behaving,、um, the economy.、Uh, I've been studying and working both since I had the scholarship. So it, it gave me an angle. I think that a lot of foreigners probably do not have the job I had. Also forced me to travel a lot. So、I've, I think I've, I've, I was. Lucky enough to have an angle on Japan that a lot of people probably sometimes miss when they just come for a couple of months or a couple of years just for work. Right. Well, just keeping up with the Japanese prime ministers can be a full time occupation in <laughs> itself. <laughs> They change every few months. But、uh, so you see,、so、you were here.、Uh, you at least saw the, the the end of the bubble there in eighty nine, ninety. Can you talk about the ways that Japan has changed since that time? Well, I mean, it's it's Japan has pretty much the same history as everywhere. Every time something goes wrong. Uh, a lot of the profits、uh, are kept private, and a lot of the losses are socialized. and And if you just keep that in mind, and you just study any country、uh, along the lines of of that behavior, the more things go wrong, the more the king takes over himself and forces the people to pay for the mess. And the more things go right, the more people keep the money for themselves. So Japan really went through a lot of that.、Um, I think something called the Plaza Accords、uh, in eighty five was where pretty much the money supply in Japan. Well. Uh, you can go back to the eighteen nineteenth century easily to describe why we're in such a difficult situation today. Bismarck and and all the people back then and relationship with Japan, but ninety、um, was really booming. A lot of money was printed,、um, too much was printed. Bubbles,、uh, a phenomenon that a lot of probably American people are familiar with. The the Nikkei went、uh, through the roof.、Uh, housing prices went through the roof. Ginza, a lot of places where. Everybody could just not make sense of what was happening, and then suddenly the bubble collapses. And, and like I said, they just tried to socialize all the losses. And so the taxpayer has been providing for all the pain、uh, since then. And every time they increase regulations, you get fewer and fewer banks, fewer and fewer companies.、Um, the less choices people have, less competition, high prices, lower quality. So over the last fifteen years, really, Japan has really changed. Um, it's something that's been in the making. Let's just be honest. It's, it's part of the education. It's part of the mindset. So, just like in America, the, the problems in America didn't just show up suddenly in 2007. They've been in the making since 1913 or whatever the date people want to go back to. 
But the problems in Japan were in the making for a long time. World War II, uh, not understanding World War II will not allow people to really understand why Japan is, is in such a mess today. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. Well, we have we have obviously a large international audience and a lot of people out there who aren't really familiar with the Japanese context. So let's provide a little bit of that and go back to some of that history, including the post World War II reconstruction and the and the boom and then the the bubble. Let's talk about some of that history and and talk about some of the politics that have underlied Japanese uh, parliamentary system since since the end of the Second World War and the the constitution that was drafted up by the United States. Well, I think to understand World War II, if you give me just a minute, there's one movie that really describes what happened in 1868, which was what they call the Meiji Restoration, when a bunch of corrupt politicians and senators took over. There was a movement to try to free structure. The country was going under different waves. You had a lot of intelligent writers, Kuzawa Yukichi, the guy who was on the 10,000 yen bill, who showed up. But the movie, the best movie to understand what happened in Japan is Star Wars. George Lucas, uh, who made Star Wars, uh, was a big fan of Japan. He was a big fan of Kurosawa Akira, uh, born in 1910, samurai family, George Lucas. So if you really want to understand the samurai, uh, he just, it's all in there. It's all in Star Wars. So the lightsaber is the katana of the samurai, then the, the senators, the Palpatine, and whatever you want to call them, Darth Sidious, Darth Vader are pretty much the people who built what they call the Galactic Empire, so the Dainippon Teikoku, or the Japanese Empire. And then they went around and they played around, and their model was completely mapped on Bismarck. Uh, and so in 1930 and 1935, when things started getting rough in, in Europe, Hitler started looking for people to... He went and knocked on doors. I think Franco was one of them, Mussolini was one of them, and Japan was no stranger. And Japan was really messing up with the, uh, with the Asian region. And so uh, they got involved in the wrong war, with the wrong people, on the wrong side, and they lost. And so um, Roosevelt died, Truman, I believe, was next, and they wrote this thing called the Potsdam um, uh, Joyak, I, I forgot the name in, in English, but it's the Potsdam Treaty. And I think it argued um, for unconditional surrender from Japan. And Japan said no. And so, of course, they, they tried to argue, let's try to negotiate this thing around, and the U.S. said no. So they just bombed uh, the country, one city, out of existence, um, Japanese said, give us more time. The U.S. said, no, um, we're not going to do uh, anything but unconditional surrender. Three days later, a different city gets bombed out of existence. Japan has no choice on their knees. And so since then, they've become an unofficial colony of the U.S., if you will. Um, so since 1945, the U.S. has come here. They've bought back every army that was available. Well, they bought back, they took back. Uh, every army. So now today, Japan is a land, is a man, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, how do you call that in, in English? A landmine or, or it's, it's, it's loaded with nothing but American armies. Uh, they've taken everything from the Tokugawa period. Everything is, is owned by the Americans today. And since 1960, 1970, it, it sped up as Nixon needed money. He didn't want to tax people. So he needed a lot of money, uh, mostly for what Kennedy had spent. And they've realized that they could just force Japan to uh, buy up all the debt, uh, all the instruments that the government uh, in the U.S. is trying to, to, to sell and has no bidder. They don't want to raise taxes to fund all the bombing that you're talking about in Syria and other places. So what they did is they forced a lot of central banks in Asia, which were wiped out of the army and who could not say no, to buy up all the debt. So you have, since 1970 pretty much, Japan mostly and, and China as well, they've been coerced in buying. And I see a lot of people on TV wondering why 
would China or why would Japan bother to buy such useless assets uh, from uh, the United States governments? I mean, it doesn't make sense when you think about it rationally to have the despots here take all their people's money and buy up foreign countries that typically a despot wants to keep the money for himself. So uh, every time you see Madeleine Albright or Hillary Clinton show up in Japan, typically the following morning, you've got the auction, you've got the government bonds sold by the U.S., and for some reason, the only people to show up are the Japanese central banks, uh, foreign central banks. And so, yeah, Japan has been be, has been forced, coerced into an unofficial, undeclared uh, colony of the U.S. And to add to that, they've kept their taxation system. So uh, not only do people have to uh, pay up for the government in the U.S. for their share of, of the money that they're forcing Japanese to buy up, but they also have to provide for their own bureaucracy. So it's become really, really heavy. And the amount of problems, the social problems that they're talking about in the country, um, uh, social kake, I'll just name them in Japanese if you have Japanese listener, but typically social kake, ijime, hikikomori, um, they're all, they all have to do with social issues where you see a lot of kids uh, tired, you see a lot of kids, you know, lock themselves in rooms. And so since the 1970, um, you need to go back to 1860, 1870 to really understand why we're here. But typically it's been on a increasing, I probably almost feel like using Al Gore's uh, a frog metaphor. These people have been in a boiling pot uh, for a long time and, and the heat just keeps on going and going and going. And, and there's, it's a culture where people, it's too far out in the absurd and the obscene for anyone to raise a hand and say, listen, I think we might want to reconsider the things. And I think every smart thinker, Luther King or, or whoever, pick your feature, Gandhi, every time they start noticing that something is just too corrupt, I mean, you almost have to just give up on your life pretty much. It's, it's a, you sign, you sign a blank check because you know that people are so tired um, that, they, like Shakespeare said, they will shoot the messenger pretty much. If you come up with a weird message, uh, even though they should fo- focus on the message, the, the natural tendency will be to focus on the messenger. So the country is really, really in a difficult position. The pressure has been building up so much by, by small increments for the last, what, 100 years. And it's not as if, I mean, the, the past 2,672 years or, or, or the age of Japan were, are, are not to blame also this kind of mentality of having an emperor or having a, a, a bureaucracy, a samurai. They used to have that four level that they brought, but was brought in from China. They call it Shinokosho. So it's a, you know, very stratified, very close to what the French people had, the princes, the kings, the barons and whatnot. So yes, since 1990, 1995, Japan, the increments are starting to show. So it's, it's as if someone has been has had a weird uh, disease for quite a while, and now suddenly you can see the person cough, you can see the person, now it's starting to show, and 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 very few people today, very, very few people today, we're talking about 125 million people, very, very few people have the courage to stand up and say, listen, this is, this is probably going a little bit too far, we might need to rethink this whole thing out, uh, because it's too far, it's just too far, so it's going to take a lot of courage for someone to do that. It certainly is, and especially in the Japanese culture, which has been noted to be uh, very much one built on harmony and accord, and uh, not and saving face, and not uh, rock, rocking the boat too much. So it it will take, I think, quite a lot of uh, intestinal fortitude on the Japanese people's behalf to really 
to really start this process going. So it is very exciting to see things like the Tokyo Tea Party taking off and other signs that people have had enough of what this really amounted to, at the very least, half a century of American colonial rule in all but name. So so definitely some very exciting things happening here politically, and we'll see what happens with them. And we'll talk with you more about the Tokyo Tea Party in particular. But first, let's take another break. If there's anyone out there who would like to get in on this conversation and ask any questions or make any comments uh, to our guest, you can get in at 1-800-313-9443. That's 1-800-313-9443. Or you can tweet your questions or comments live on air at Corbett Report, and I will address them on air. So let's just take a short break, and we'll be right back with Marco Bella right after this. All right, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. Once again, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight we're talking to Mark Abella of the Tokyo Tea Party at Tokyo-TeaParty.jp. And in the previous segment there, we were talking about some of the history and context of what has led Japan to this point and some of the cultural conditioning that the Japanese people have been through for centuries, really, in a very uh, feudalistic and top-down type of society. And I think a lot of people are starting to break that through that conditioning, but it's a very strong conditioning. So we'll have to see what comes of this. But let's start talking a little bit about the Tokyo Tea Party and how it came together and why you decided to get involved with it. Uh, so, like I said, uh, I think complicated situations sometimes call for just a bit of courage, more than intelligence, um, but at least courage. I think it was Immanuel Kant who argued that enlightenment ultimately really has to do with nothing but inner courage, much more than intellectual capacities. And um, there's this fellow who appears to be both courageous and intelligent, and his, his name is Yuya Watase. Um, and he decided to use the December 1773 incidents. Um, and I am sure a lot of people on your program are already aware, but for those who don't know, it was pretty much one of the first serious time in history where a lot of people told their kings or their despots or their rulers, you know, if you want your money, just work like everybody else. Just stop taxing us uh, for your money. So it's, it was one of the clearest, best documented display of courage, I would say, um, back then for people to stand up to their kid and, and to their king and say, if you want your money, well, just work like everybody else. Stop just stealing it from us. Um, so Yuya Watase, who's very, very well uh, aware and, and thought, and he's just uh, researched the whole thing, decided to launch uh, what he called the Tokyo Tea Party. So it's really based on the ni- on 1773 ideas. And the guy who is on the 10,000 yen bill, uh, which is approximately $100, which is the equivalent of the Benjamin Franklin face. It's called Fukuzawa Yukichi, and he was one of the greatest writers, I would argue, um, in history. Uh, he's very little known because he's not really well translated. But So Yuya Watase decided to take all this history, and he organized this group, and he launched it into existence out of nothing. Um, I think thanks to the new media, the, the social media, or whatever people call that, um, he managed to get a lot of people. I think he has 2,000 people in his group right now, uh, one way or another. And he decided to branch out uh, and, and try to reach out, uh, and which is something that most individualistic groups don't do well. So the socialists and the society has this talent to, to really quickly go for, let's just all think the same thing. Let's just all agree to think that we all think that we agree to the, think the same thing. Uh, whereas a lot more of the Ayn Randian uh, um, libertarian and the society doesn't gather all that much. They don't like to be seen thinking the way other people see. So 
there's a lack of um, of cooperation. I would probably wants to argue, or at least we can learn. We can still learn from each other. We can still do the Jedi thing, learning from each other without having to be part of that kind of socialistic mentality. And that's what he's doing right now, trying to expand, build up in Japan. He's got two thousand people. He's got a web page. He's been inviting people from the U.S. to make discussions here in Japan. He's really, really active. He's really on the floor, on the ground, uh, inviting people, making presentations. Every month he has uh, a series, uh, a group of people getting together, re-reviewing, rediscussing history. Um, so he's uh, really, really active. I think a lot of credit should go to him for, for his good work. That's right. And as you say, he's been uh, really traveling the world and talking to people all around. Uh, where are some of the places that uh, that you guys have reached out to? So uh, the, the beds of, of, of this culture of, of avoiding taxation or doing without a king or prime minister or president or whatever you want to call it, a taxing body um, today in 2012, maybe it'll be a different spot in 2500, but then today it really remains the U.S. and some locations in Europe, I would say. Um, so he's been branching out and really reaching out to some of the people in the U.S. There's two groups in particular with, with which he's been in touch. One is called Freedom Works, and it's a really big group. They are really influential. And so just last month, end of July, we, uh, him and I, uh, just the two of us went and joined an event in Dallas uh, where they invited all the Tea Party, the Tokyo Tea Party. So just to go back quickly, April of this year, Yuya Watase decided to organize an international Tea Party party. So what he did is he contacted through all the friends he had, myself and others. We got in touch with Italy, Australia, Israel, and believe it or not, of course, every country has its own share of Tea Party equivalent. And so we got all these groups together and we just organized uh, um, a one-day worldwide Tea Party event. And suddenly all these people were aware of each other and all these groups uh, decided or were invited in a way by the, the Freedom Works events in, in Dallas where they had Rand Paul and others, the Glenn Beck uh, kind of team. Um, and so we were all invited. So you had people from uh, Georgia, a brilliant country. If you have the chance to, to look, uh, if people in your audience have the chance to look at Georgia, communist country, 1917, Bolshevik, 1921, they dive under, go under communism. 2003, they wake up, they have what they call the Rose Revolution, drop minimum wage, uh, everything. They've changed everything. They had no regulations at all, visas for anyone, and the country just went four times uh, GDP in only eight years. The girls are all wearing beautiful things. They have everything you can think about today. So and they're headed by a t- uh, tie-munching Sakashvili NATO puppet. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure that's an example that I want to to emulate. But but let's take that. Let's take a short break. We're coming up against another break. We have a nice long segment coming up. So let's uh, let's take a short break. Once again, talking to Marco Bella of the Tokyo Tea Party. We'll be back with more right after these messages. This Monday night edition of Corporate Report Radio, uh, the 200th edition of Corporate Report Radio, talking to Mark Abella of the Tokyo Tea Party. Once again, that's tokyo-teaparty.jp, but that is really only handy if you are uh, really able to read Japanese, which uh, I can do on a day-to-day level, but it's very difficult for me to read a newspaper or, or anything of that sort. Very, uh, very difficult to read the Chinese characters. So for those of you out there who are similarly having trouble with that, is there is there a website or information resource for, for English speakers about this international Tea Party movement? 
so the guys in the U.S. called Freedom Works um, have a lot of pages. They've tried to cover the the event, at least the the, the last month's event. So they've invited us pretty much to uh, an event which was already scheduled. So it's not as if they held the event for us. The event was already scheduled, and so they invited people from Greece, from Australia, from Georgia, from Serbia, and so we ended up joining. So the amount of information available today in English about the Japanese Tea Party is still uh, uh, limited. Uh, we should, we I think we want to be working on that very soon. Uh, but the information about Freedom Works and and the international Tea Party movement is something which uh, which can be found. There was also uh, um, a worldwide party organized in April that I talked about, and there was a web page built for that. So I'll try to send you the link uh, later if you want, so that you have it with you. And I Absolutely. think there's some information in English right there. Where, and it points to all the sites of the Australian, Israeli Tea Parties. So a lot of people can connect if they want with with more local groups. Well, you send those links along to me, and I will put them in the show notes for tonight's okay. episode at CorbettReport.com slash radio. So for those of you listening to the podcast afterwards, you can uh, you can get those links from there. But uh, let's let's back up a minute. Before the break, we were talking about some of the examples of some of the people attending the, the International uh, Conference of International Tea Party Associations or whatever whatever terminology you want to use there. But uh, we were talking, for example, about Georgia, and I, I cut you off, uh, the break cut us off, about uh, talking about that and some of the issues there. I, I I don't know a lot about the, the internal domestic politics of Georgia or what's going on there. I was really referencing the geopolitics and the 888 invasion of South Ossetia and uh, bringing, bringing the world to the brink of uh, some sort of uh, crisis and uh, Russia eventually coming in and saying we're prepared to use nuclear missiles against Georgia, which is a ridiculous state of affairs. But I think uh, Saakashvili and NATO brought that on, on themselves. You mentioned the Rose Revolution, which we know was fun- funded at least in part by the Open Society and George Soros. So I'm very... Um, very hesitant about that. Obviously, we know Soros and what the types of activities he's been behind. But uh, but in terms of the internal politics and the domestic policies of the Georgian government, I really don't know a lot about that. So perhaps you can elaborate more. Well, I, I come from a, from probably the other angle, so I'm not completely aware. I just met the people who were part of the Tea Party, the local libertarian movement in Georgia. So who I doubt George Soros would have funded these guys because obviously there there would be a serious conflict. I, I have learned to stop trusting um, people like Soros and others, obviously, over the years. Um, but the, the, the people from Georgia, six great, elegant gentlemen, and they described exactly the steps they went through. So, yes, Rose Revolution. I don't know how it's presented in the media or who uh, takes the credit. I mean, even... Uh, when the, the the Soviet uh, Union fell, you had people like the Pope saying it's you know it's thanks to me. Um, so I don't I'm not sure that all these people who often take the credit for the good news are actually the people in the back, uh, who really do all the the good work to be done. At least I'm convinced I've met with the people who were part of the solution. And so what they did was very simple. Uh, they've really brought down uh, uh, regulations to the floor. So you just put up your car, put something on your car, and you call yourself a taxi. You're in business, same day. Uh, regulations, no minimum wage law. So if you want to sell lemonade, you want to work as a barber shop, you're welcome. They've dropped every, uh, I think for 88 countries, they were saying no visa restriction, even though it's not, it may not be reciprocal. So they have, they welcome people. They allow two uh, nationalities. They've brought out all the taxes to really simplistic taxes. So they have a couple of them, uh, but it's, it's really fl- what a lot of people call flat taxes. And they've really brought down a lot of uh, the, the state. Uh, they've also included 
things uh, such that the, the the government would have to keep its its deficit. Of course, that's not perfect. It's always like uh, I think we were saying earlier. Uh, you really have people. Uh, I mean, history is just that. You have people putting the pulling the, the blanket of society towards a lighter, more enlightened, uh, um, clearer end of the tunnel, or you have people, more people pulling towards the darker end of society. And from what I understand, Georgia is, a, is an interesting example of at least a lot of people underground who have taken a country which was really, I mean, they didn't have electricity 15 years ago. And now girls are wearing, are wearing Vuittons and, and, and Gucci or whatever. You, so um, there is a case to be made. Um, but Hong Kong, any country you look for, I'm sure you will find uh, the corruption uh, if you look for it. But these fine gentlemen did a very, very good job. So we had people, like I said, from Serbia, from Greece, from Australia, from Israel, brilliant people, very smart, very intelligent. And everybody got together under the umbrella of the Freedom Works event, which was scheduled before us anyway. And it was in Dallas. Um, right. Well, let, let's talk about the what brings these people together because we we touched on some of this uh, this tension before when you were mentioning the the, the idea of the Enrandian libertarian side of the spectrum not not being good at playing together as it were and and getting along together and and that's understandable because of course socialism is fundamentally about collective and and subsuming the individual so they they might be more capable of getting people to to go in dissolve their identity into these group collectives but obviously for something like the the tea party or that end of the spectrum it's it's really uh about the fundamentally opposite idea that individuals are individuals and that uh, they should be treated as such and not collectivized so it's difficult to get people into a, a sort of broad umbrella group or, or something where they can come together like that let's talk about some of those tensions and and how the international tea party is is trying to resolve that well, well, typically, I mean, I, I like Orwell because I think he provided us with the greatest example, which was the animal farm. And if you if you jump out of the human race and into the animal uh, world, which we're part of eventually, but uh, if you look at animals, it's it's always easier to make a point. So allow me to use animals, uh, and it'll just uh, it'll, uh, the message will probably come up a lot clearer. But typically, so, socialist movements are very. A lot of people use the sheep to to describe them, but. If you see a bunch of sheep walk and one walk outside the, well, it's just a matter of seconds before it joins. The, the tea party often tend to like the eagle, uh, as, as a symbol, or at least in the US. And, and it's like trying to take a bunch of eagles and telling them, okay, let's just, you know, let's just get together. Let's just have a discussion. It's not going to happen. There, there's no way they're not brought up that way. They're, you can't ask an eagle to come and sit down. And, and talk and let's just try to learn from each other. Okay? It's not going to happen. That's not how they're built. That's not how they behave. So uh, it's a challenge. It's a clear challenge. Having said that, um, if I use George Lucas uh, movies um, as, a, as a probably better example, there is stuff that people can learn from each other. There is clearly mistakes that do not need to be repeated in order to get the lesson out of the mistake. So it was really interesting. I think the, the 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 most interesting thing was what works and what doesn't work for us and what do you do that we don't do that we could eventually do. So we managed to stay out of let's just think together, let's just think the same thing, let's just repeat after me that we all agree that we all say the same thing. We we really managed to do without this kind of approach to to reflecting on, on society and really learning just like you would go and learn or in maybe The Matrix or other movies do a good job at describing it, but just like people learn from each other skills that they can also them, then themselves use 
for the benefit of 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 their own personal uh, ideas in a way. So you had people uh, who came from a lot of different places, people who had a lot of experience as well. So you had the people from England as well, people from uh, Germany, people from uh, Italy. And so we all have our challenges and some of us have gone through mistakes that others haven't. So that was really the focus of the discussion for at least the international movement tried to at least keep it to let's just learn from each other and let's just keep in touch so that we learn from our mistakes instead of just let's do all all think the same way or let's just all repeat the same mistakes before we learn from each other. Absolutely. And that's something that resonates with me personally, because personally, I'm not a card carrying member of any party or any organization or or movement or anything of that sort, and probably never will be because of those types of issues. But at the same time, I don't want that to become that we're all just atomized and can't work together, which I think is ultimately going to be the long term solution. We have to come together at the very least as communities, and we have to learn from and listen to other people from other cultures and see how they uh, what kinds of solutions they have to bring to the table. And of course, that's part of the uh, the interesting part about this each different country has its own regulations and history and context so they all have their own potential solutions but uh, obviously there are things that people can learn from from other uh, countries that have tried things in the past as well if you were going to speak broadly about some of the principles or ideals that are shared by the uh, the people that are coming together under this uh, international tea party banner what types of principles are we talking about well, first of all, the challenges are, are very similar, uh, even though, like you said, all the countries have their own weather, they have their own people, their own food, their own methods. Uh, I think Stéphane Molyneux, and, I, and I, I, uh, I've seen you interview um, Stéphane in the past, uh, I think he was one of the guys who put it best uh, in saying that you don't have really 198 countries registered at the UN, you have 198 farms. And if you start looking at countries as farms and different farming methods, then suddenly you don't, I mean, it all makes sense. You Sometimes you have the farmer giving back a bit of healthcare here, uh, taking all the eggs to bum the farm next door. Um, and if you see it just like a succession of farms, suddenly um, it's easier to think about farming methods or farm management uh, for farms in, in a way. So the challenges were really identical. First of all, the apathy uh, is is uh, is uh, dramatic. I mean, the, the apathy is, is through the stratosphere for a lot of people still uh, i mean you would think that with the internet and everything a lot it's really hard to get people to jump into the conversation i think most people don't really understand what's happening i think they're shy as a result uh, and they don't want to get in, into the the, the the discussion because the conflict they're not used to disagreeing with people uh they aren't used to trying to you know discuss with ideas that they haven't borrowed from anywhere um so that was one thing, how to undo the apathy uh, in the system. So that was uh, one of the challenges that we all shared in a way, how to try to invite people. And you can't coerce people out of coercion. You can't regulate people out of regulations. You can't, uh, you can't, you know, force people outside. Uh, uh, you, you can't, it, it's, it's, it's not, it's a, it's a negating message ultimately. So how to, how to politely invite people outside the firm is, is really probably was the challenge and, and kill the apathy. The second thing that we obviously shared was the astronomical numbers, uh, 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 or how big the damage is. I mean, if if we were, I don't know, if we had a, a king or a prime minister, call it what you will, and the guy taxed us 10% and had a bit of a, uh, a debt here or a bit of money there that he owned to someone, I mean, we can still argue that there's still ways to do things better. But the numbers, like the debt to GDP, and even debt to GDP doesn't mean anything because typically... The government is not GDP. The government has its own budget. So typically it should be debt to the budget of the government, not debt to GDP to start with. So if you start playing around with the numbers, 
first of all, it's astronomical. It's just like it, there's no way on the planet kids will ever be able to provide with serious labor some of the debts that some of the governments are leaving on the back of some of the kids. So we're, we're starting from a really, really complicated location. There's no easy way out. It's going to, I mean, a lot of promises have been made in all the countries. And there, I mean, a lot of these promises, a lot of the people who are expecting these promises, who've been spending 10 years, 20 years, 30 years working, looking forward to these promises are going to have, a lot of people are going to have to work with the, the reality that the money is just not available. And so it's either them or their kids. It, it can't be both. And so a lot of people are going to have to make a lot of tough choices. I'm not sure we're ready uh, to make these choices, but at least we have to talk about them. We have to be aware that this is where we are. And so apathy and the, 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 the how to invite people outside their shy comfort zone uh, and invite people to jump into the conversation. I think Mises was arguing often that, you know, there's no way out. You have to jump in there. You have to just discuss with people. No, no one can find a safe a place in society if it's if everybody's shutting up uh, and the the size of the problems uh, were two things that we obviously all the all the countries seem to share uh, very clearly well absolutely and uh, you you mentioned the problem of getting people outside of their com- comfort zone and i think that's particularly a problem in japanese culture where there is uh, i think even less so in a lot of countries that that culture of of having confrontation or or having arguments with people especially in mixed company so as one of my japanese friends put it once politics is just background to us and we don't talk about it with uh, with people in our everyday life and that's very much what i've found in my experience here with a lot of people perhaps uh, in the tea party circles in in Tokyo, it's quite different than, than that. But uh, but let's talk about that problem of breaking through people's comfort zone. Um, I think the the, uh, the silence is obviously, uh, um, I don't like the brainwash word, but it's obviously, it's part of the of, of the, the, the kit. It's part of the set. I mean, you don't have a highly vertical, highly feudal society and a, a, a society capable of, discussing anything at all times. Um, and I would argue that silence is uh, um, not a symptom, but a, a, a decision. It's imposed probably on the people. I don't think people know it all that well. But if I, I've been working here in this country for 15 years and 16 years. And I remember in my very first years uh, as being a sales guy uh, in Japan, I would go and talk to the customer and I say, listen, by the way, have you, uh, have you seen the election? Are you following? And I had an interest back then already, not understanding most of what I was talking about, but I was trying to put the discussion and I would remember my, my what they call senpai in Japan on the, the guy on top of me, uh, who would bring, take me after the meeting with the customer and say, listen, in Japan, we just don't talk about these things. We just don't bring them out. Uh, there's three things we're not allowed to talk uh, during a meeting. Uh, it's religion, uh, politics, and I forgot what the third one was, but obviously it's out there. It's the, 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 um, the mentality is, our, is already inside the system. So a lot of people have um, 20 years, 30 years of a practice of rehearsal, of, of respecting silence, of not imposing, not trying to see what their own opinion of the subject is and trying to borrow from someone they, they trust and I think a lot of the price is getting more and more, the cost of doing so is getting more and more expensive. And I think a lot of people um, are not ready. They don't have the muscles or it's a little bit atrophied, um, their capacity to be able to just say, you know what, I just, I, it just doesn't make sense. I, I disagree. I care to disagree and I will not stand anymore for this situation because 
Uh, first of all, it's it's a, a lot of people have to do it at the same time for them to be comfortable with doing it. And uh, um, the language in Japan is is a bit of a difficult language, uh, as you were probably mentioning as well. And I would argue that vertical societies usually have difficult languages uh, because you want to have uh, at birth quickly uh, a, a, a verticality in that I speak well. I speak French, I know how to be polite, I write good letters. Thus, I come from a good family, I've been to a good university. I'm, my parents had better means than you have, and you can only write with this level. And so I think the more vertical society gets, the more vertical, the more complicated the language gets. And I think Japanese is no, no exception, I would say. Absolutely. No, I've certainly noticed that uh, that there's definitely a, a stratification in the language itself. And uh, polite Japanese is almost a completely different language than regular Japanese. But on that note, let's, uh, let's take a short break, and then we'll be back after these messages to wrap things up. Once again, talking to Mark Avella of the Tokyo Tea Party. So stay right there. We'll be right back. Friends, welcome back. Here we are in the final few minutes of Corbett Report Radio here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. And, of course, I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Tonight, for those of you just joining us, we've been talking to Mark Abella of Tokyo-TeaParty.jp. We'll have links to that website and some of the other uh, sites uh, in the international Tea Party universe up at CorbettReport.com slash radio when this gets posted to the archives there. But, uh, Mark, let's just wrap things up uh, on, uh, well, maybe a positive note. Uh, certainly, there are a lot of things happening in Japan, and it's not all good news. In fact, a lot of worrying developments taking place, not only, of course, as we've seen in the last uh, year and a half with what's happened at Fukushima, and speaking of the socialization of, uh, of losses and the privatization of wealth, I think TEPCO is a case in point. But at the very least, at least a lot of people are, are angry about the way the government has treated them during this crisis and the, uh, the way that the government has mishandled it in cooperation and conjunction with TEPCO. We also see talk about the raising of the consumption tax here in Japan from five percent to eight percent and eventually to ten percent some things that i think a lot of japanese people are going to be uh, starting to get very concerned about and, and perhaps prompt a few of them to get out of that comfort zone let's talk about some of these developments and what you expect might happen in the next few years here so yeah i mean the, the, the there are more good news i would argue than, than bad news of course the government's just doing what it does best it keeps on trying to get more money for itself uh, they're trying to raise taxes as much as possible but uh the internet has really been the, the Gutenberg press of uh, the 21st century, at least. Um, suddenly people have started, like in, in most countries, I would argue, I, I don't think Japan is an exception, but at least Japan is not an exception, which is the good news. Uh, a lot of young people are waking up. They're realizing there's a lot of material out there that they've never been exposed to. Um, I had a meeting um, just this weekend with the only student of, of Ludwig von Mises, the only Japanese student, and a lot of kids were there, 21, 22, 23. They knew about Nozick. They would quote uh, a lot of different people that I barely even knew myself. Um, so obviously there are a lot of good news, and the Tokyo Party is probably part of this this whole movement. Um, it's not an easy battle. I mean, it's not a battle which is won, but um, there are good signs. The damage is important, uh, and and it's been in, in the making for several years, so I don't think you undo... Um, these things in, in a week or two weeks or ever. I mean, uh, probably 
um, history uh, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years will still show signs of what's happening today. But at least the good news is uh, a lot of people, a lot of young, uh, energetic people, and if you've been in this country, you know that once they decide to do something, weirdly enough, they do it extremely well and with a lot of passion, uh, the right kind of emotions, um, the attention to details, and there's very little things that go undone. I mean, when I came to Japan, uh, cell phones showed up in the U.S., and the cell phones in Japan two weeks later were a hundred times better better than what, what you would find. And it's Absolutely. true for cars, it's true for a lot of things. Fukuzawa Yukichi, actually, who came back from his trip in Europe, wrote a book called Gakumon no Susume, a book I would recommend if people are interested in trying to understand Japan. The book is much, it's, it's, it's almost better than a lot of the stuff that a lot of the people out there from Jefferson to, to Franklin have written. So a lot of really, really good news, I think, for Japan, even though the battle is just not won yet, that's for sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, there's a lot to be said there, and uh, hopefully we can continue this conversation at a later date. But in the meantime, I hope people will at least check into the International Tea Party Movement. If you are uh, conversant in Japanese, by all means, check out tokyo-teaparty.jp. Otherwise, uh, you can find perhaps your local equivalent. And on that note, we're going to have to leave it there. So, Mark Abella, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting us. All right. Okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, once again, I'll be back tomorrow night with uh, Pepe Escobar. And on Thursday, Wednesday night, sorry, we'll have Brock West of Asia Pacific Perspective. So until tomorrow night, thank you all out there for listening and take care.